Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 33, read through verse 37, and a message entitled it, Your Yes Be Yes and Your No No, Honoring Truthfulness in Words and Actions. Uh, I, I study a lot of commentaries when I'm, when I'm preparing for messages and they help me with the exegetical work. I, I throw some things in there that, that, that I find out are biblically sound after reflecting upon what others have written and, and uh, about various texts. But I want to acknowledge three men in particular this morning. Uh, John Stott, Kent Hughes, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anything you read from those three guys you can trust. Those are biblical men, solid men who are going to tell you what God's Word says. Kent Hughes, John Stott, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Would you now stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Heavenly Father, as we uh, continue to walk through this magnificent Sermon on the Mount that, that your Son delivered to us, Father, we are thankful for its teaching, where it speaks to our hearts and our minds and conforms us, shapes us, gives us guidelines, Father, for how we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And we pray that you do that today and that you'd help us to listen with open ears, Father. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to us the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. A wealthy businessman lay on his deathbed. His pastor came to visit him, and he began to talk with him about the things you talk with, about when someone is close to death, talked about the promise of heaven and the hope that God offered and the possibility that God could yet heal him. And then he asked before he left if he could pray with the businessman. And, of course, the businessman said, sure. So he prayed with him, and when the pastor was done, the businessman told the pastor, if God heals me, I'm going to give the church a million dollars. Well, miraculously, the guy began to get better. And, in fact, in a few weeks, he was released, allowed to go home. And a couple of Sundays went by, and then one day the pastor saw the businessman at church, and he said to him, you remember how you, when you were in the hospital, you promised that if you got well that you'd give the church a million dollars? And the businessman replied, did I say that? I guess that just goes to show you how sick I really was. <laughs> we're, we're all aware that we live in a, in a thoroughly confusing world. A world where truthfulness has been devalued. A world where right and wrong are relative and where the standards are variable. A world where most people have accepted the lie of something called relativism. Now, what is relativism? Relativism is the philosophical view which states that the knowledge, truth, and morality existing in a culture, society, or historical context are not absolute. In other words, they depend upon multiple and ever-changing variables. Feelings trump facts. Emotions overrule evidence. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Relative truth is the belief that truth changes based 
on an individual's understanding of that truth. There are, again, there are no absolutes. So what may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. And a, a common statement we might hear along those lines is, well, well, you have your truth, but I have my truth. That's illogical. It's contradictory. It's hypocritical. But regardless, that's the mindset of a lot of folks today. What's clear to, to anyone who cares to honestly evaluate our culture and our times is that absolute truth has been canceled by absolute nonsense. It's true. By the way, we often hear the phrase absolute truth. What, what is absolute truth? Absolute truth is an objective and unchanging truth that is independent of individual perspectives or beliefs. In fact, you do not need to believe in absolute truth for it to be true. Gravity is an example of absolute truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an example of absolute truth. For us as believers, and really, actually, for everyone who's ever lived or ever will live, Jesus is Lord, is absolute truth. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on earth, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess, every tongue confess, not just believers, every tongue confess, that what? Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. About our times, Francis Schaeffer has said, the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. So surveys reveal, and about our times, surveys reveal that less than one out of three Christians believe in the idea of absolute truth. Most Americans, and sadly most Christians, about 71% say that truth is always relative to the person or to the situation, which we must understand absolutely plays a role in how decisions are being made along ethical and moral lines. By far the most common basis for moral decision-making is doing what feels right, doing what makes me comfortable in a situation. 13% of the people, only 13% of the people in our culture base their decisions on biblical principles. And the result is that we live in a culture where we've seen the rise of the one-word worldview, whatever, which is naturally, it's, it's, it's only naturally going to flow out of a mentality that raises pluralism and relativism and tolerance and diversity to, to the top of, of the virtue scale without regard to, to the impact, the long-term impact of those ideas and the actions that come out of them. One of the foundational tenets of biblical Christianity is that God has communicated to us moral principles in His Word that are intended to guide the way that we act and, and we think, regardless of how we feel, regardless of the situation we're in, regardless of the preferences that, that we may have. And that perspective is called a biblical worldview. I'm just a review for some of you. Maybe it's new for some of you. Biblical worldview is a perspective that interprets and understands the world based on the teachings and principles found in Holy Scripture. Now, obviously... Goes without saying, that kind of worldview is wildly unpopular in our culture today, which, again, obviously I would suggest to you is a leading contributor to the fast-fading strength and influence of the American church in our culture today. So it's not surprising when we hear 
statistics about Americans and their commitment to truthfulness that are along these lines. 91% say they lie on a regular basis. 86% lie to their parents regularly. 75% lie to their friends. 69% lie to their spouses. 50% regularly called into work to say they were sick when they weren't. And we kind of understand those kind of numbers, not to make excuses, but we kind of understand when we're talking about lost people because lost people act like what? Lost people, right? Lost people act like lost people. But, but how about when you compare the ethics of Christian and non-Christian adults? Well, it's not pretty as it turns out. Because what is revealed is that almost as many Christians steal from work as do non-Christians. The Christians are just as likely to falsify their income tax return, to illegally copy computer programs or illegally download streaming services on their devices, to steal time from work, to exaggerate their products or their production, and here's one that hurts, to selectively obey traffic laws. Oh, that doesn't, you know, it's okay if I do 40 here even though it says 35, no problem. 19th century American humorist Josh Billings said something 150, 200 years ago that rings more true than it did when he said it. As scarce as truth is, the supply has always been in excess of the demand. It's true. None of us would argue that the moral and ethical character of American culture has been ebbing for decades. Some would say the moral character has been, the fabric of our character has been ripped, torn asunder. Even though we like to say, people in general in our culture like to say that, that, that we're people who value the truth, at least theoretically, but there's, there's little evidence to a commitment to being truthful people. It's becoming increasingly difficult to know who's telling the truth out there and who's not. I mean, who, who can we believe? The search for people of integrity in our day is kind of like looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. Regardless of profession, or religion, or gender, or age, persons of integrity are far too rare in our culture, period. The question you and I must ask ourselves is, am I one of them? Am I a person of integrity? Is my life characterized by integrity? Am I as good as my word? The Bible clearly teaches us that we should be. In our, in our text today from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is plainly saying that we should be as good as our word, are you and I as good as our word? Our parents taught us as children, hopefully taught us as children, the, the importance of being persons of, of high character. So, some parents were big on encouraging their children by telling them how hard they had worked to make for themselves and make their family name a good name in the community. And now it's the child's responsibility going forward to work hard, have a good work ethic, and to maintain that good name by being persons of good character. Let me ask you, do you think much about what comes to mind for folks when they hear your name spoken? Ever think much about that? Oh, he's a man we can trust. Oh, she's a woman you can always count on to do the right thing. Brother, this ought to be important to us because how we live our lives, the choices we make, our actions and reactions out in the community, in our workplace, at our schools, speaks to our faith to our witness, to what kind of person we really are. Our Savior challenges us to be as good as our words. So let's take a look at the implications of what He taught 
which will, I believe, show us the value of being men and women of integrity. First, let's talk about the discipline of the law. Verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Another way to put this is, Don't use the Lord's name to make a promise unless you're going to keep it. Jesus is talking here, as He has been throughout the Sermon on the Mount, will going forward. He's referring us back to the, the law of God. He's referring to ideas that were expressed in places like Leviticus 19.12. You must not use my name to make false promises. If you do, you will show that you don't respect the name of your, of your God. I am the Lord. And in Numbers 30, verse 2, when a man makes a vow to God or binds himself by an oath to do something, he must not break his word. He must do exactly what he has said. That's the message translation. And again from the message translation, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 when you make a vow to God, your God, don't put off keeping it. God, your God, expects you to keep it. And if you don't, you're guilty. But if you don't make a vow in the first place, there's no sin. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Keep the vow. You willingly vow to God, your God. You promised it, so do it. So God is providing in these passages for, for the practice of making oaths by His name. He gives the appropriate regulations for confirming something with an oath. Now, beloved, it goes without saying to us that the law given by God is there to restrain human behavior, there to, to regulate human behavior, there to provide the discipline that we are unable or unwilling to provide for ourselves because, because we're sinful people, prone to wander prone to leave the God that we love. So the behavior of the people of God was intended to be regulated and restrained by the law. Still is. There can be little argument among us that as human beings, we, we need some sort of code, some kind of rules or standards for living our lives. And in the absence of that kind of moral and ethical set of laws... What's everybody going to do? Everybody's going to decide what in their own heart is the right thing to do based on the situation, based on how they're feeling at the moment, based on what might benefit them the most regardless of whether it's right or wrong. I had an eye doctor in Lewiston, Idaho, and we lived there. He had this marquee out front. He was always putting on these kind of pithy sayings meant to encourage, I'm sure. But one time I rode by, and this is the inspirational quote that he had put up that day. Today I bent the truth, and I have no regrets, for I am sure of what is kind than of that which is true. And you know, I, I appreciate the compassion. I understand what Robert Broad is trying to say with this quote, what he's getting, what, what the meaning behind that. I mean, it sounds nice on the surface, but there's a problem. There's a slippery slope here. Where do you draw the line on applying such a principle as I am more sure of what is kind than I am of that which is true to a given situation? Where do you draw the line? Phil Robertson has said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you, you, you must fear them and, and hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both 
or nonsense, he says. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And not to get too far off into religious philosophy here, but we've got to understand that apart from God, we wouldn't even know what was good. We wouldn't even know what is right, what is kind, what is truth. Even the deep recesses of their mind, an atheist will tell you that. How do you know what's right? How do you know what's good? Because God has made you in His image. So we need something that is absolute, which is what we have in the law of God. The law is righteous, and it reveals the truth and the righteousness of God. It is as the psalmist declares, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. So Jesus tells us in our text that we're not to utter false vows and oaths, but we should be true to our word. And we're reminded the law of God teaches us to fulfill our vows if we make them to the Lord. So God's intent was that the taking of oaths be a confirmation of the truth. And in Hebrews chapter 6, he, God himself makes an oath on his name to Abraham. And we read in verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. That's what we do when we go to the court, right? What does the bailiff do? I'm not sure. Do they still do this in the court, or have they changed? Probably in our culture they've changed. But I remember a day when you'd go and the bailiff would say, you put, put your hand on the Bible, and the, and the bailiff would say, Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you God? If that were to happen, it's not a sin to answer that question. Jesus himself was under oath. In Matthew 26, verse 63, we read, The high priest said to him, that is Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. So in our text, understand that Jesus is not condemning all oaths in all circumstances. He is saying that we shouldn't frivolously utter oaths in an attempt to strengthen our genuineness, in an attempt to make people understand how serious and sincere we are. If we're the kind of Christians that we ought to be, our lives should be so characterized by integrity that people come to know that whatever we say all the time can simply be taken at face value, that we're totally credible, that we're totally trustworthy, that we say what we mean and we mean what we say. Our whole lives, beloved, are supposed to be a glowing testimony of truthfulness and integrity. You and I are to live each and every day, every moment, like we're under oath to our Father who sees all, who knows all, who hears all. Do you realize that when we say things like, as God is my witness, or before God I promise with all my heart, what we're actually doing is acknowledging our propensity for dishonesty. We're motivated to make those kind of statements because we we fear that what we have to say is not going to stand on its own, that more than likely people are going to mistrust what we're saying. So we try to persuade people to believe it by invoking God, by pulling God into the picture. We imagine people will say something like, man, he must really mean this. I guess I better pay attention to what he's saying. He's, He's serious about this. The ancient Greek tragedian Aeschylus got it right almost 3,000 years ago when he said it's not the oath that makes us believe the man, but the man, the oath. An oath in Jesus' day was a, a very serious thing. It was never to be taken nonchalantly. What God intended by His law was that we shouldn't take frivolous, 
are casual vows, but we should take our vows if we make them very seriously. Beginning in verse 34, we read this, speaking of the decay of truth in this section. Do I say, but I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So again, in our culture, we, we've seen public trust and facts and truth continuously erode over the last couple of decades or so. And we've seen the toll that it's taken. If you can stand to watch the news, turn it on, you'll see, right? It doesn't take a degree in sociology or political science to see that we've come to a place in our culture where there's this great divide that Americans can no longer agree on a common set of facts. In fact, many can't distinguish opinion from fact. And an ever-increasing number have, have no confidence in the so-called experts or institutions that used to be the trusted sources of information in our world. And those trends together have led to an epistemic crisis which someone has termed truth decay. Truth decay is a descriptor that speaks to the diminishing role that facts, data, analysis, even, you know this to be true, right? Even basic biological facts now have in American society. But before we place singular blame on the culture at large or those folks over yonder who think like that, but we need to understand something. We need to understand that our troubles along these lines are fundamentally rooted somewhere else, somewhere much closer to home as in our own selfish, sinful natures. A nature that has a tendency to, to influence us to misrepresent or to distort or to obfuscate or to twist the truth. To, that is, to lie. Those are all kind words for it, right? Now, most folks out there will acknowledge, you know, we, we need some sort of standard. But when it comes right down to it, most folks don't like having a standard. And if they say that there must be a standard... That standard should apply to everyone but them. Especially when it gets in the way of how they want to live their lives. And the result is this war between our sinful nature and any standard of righteousness that's absolute. And then we begin to try to get around that standard. And we reinvent or we reinterpret or we misrepresent God's law into a set of recommendations or suggestions. How does the, the ten recommendations ring for you? instead of the Ten Commandments. doesn't have quite the same ring, does it? By the way, which may or may not be adhered to under a given set of circumstances. Which is exactly what the Old Testament law would have happened to it with regard to Jesus' teaching here. Rather than grasping the letter and the spirit of the law regarding the taking of vows and oaths, what happened was the people began to put their own spin on the truth to make it appear that you were only obligated when the oath was taken in God's name. In Leviticus 19.12, which we read earlier, God's Word says, You shall not swear falsely by my name. What happened is that that command got so twisted around so that it was okay to swear falsely by another name. And what folks did rather than swearing to God was to swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even by the hairs on their own heads. And it was that kind of oath 
taking to which Jesus was speaking in our text because it went against God's original intention. The point he's making is that we shouldn't be careless or frivolous in taking an oath. The people had twisted the truth around for convenience sake and to dodge the real problem. And Jesus reminded them and us that God owns everything. He owns the heavens. He owns the earth. He owns Jerusalem. He owns even the hairs on our own heads. We can't escape God's presence. We stand before Almighty God every minute of every day. He hears everything, sees everything, knows everything we're thinking. And He not only hears what we say in His name, He hears everything we say. And the Word teaches us that He holds us responsible. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked I got, went too fast there, didn't I? There it is. There it is. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That means everyone, that means everywhere, everything about us is bare and wide open before the, before the all-seeing eyes of our omnipresent Father. Nothing can be hidden from him to whom we must all explain all that we've said and done. The problem was that the religious establishment in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people they were able to influence who were led astray by their teaching, were trying to avoid the real issue, and that was living their lives with honesty, with integrity. This is what Jesus is addressing. There were some folks who were attempting to maintain this position of technical correctness, while from a practical standpoint, they were being wholly dishonest. Jesus, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, cuts right through all that clutter. Then in verse 37, we read, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's talk about the goodness of the godly. The truth that Jesus is communicating, the, 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 the real message I want us to get here is that our character should be marked by purity and dependability and, and sincerity and honesty and integrity. That's the character that we're to possess as godly men and godly women. Let your yes be yes, Jesus tells us, and your no, no. Speak the truth. In other words, be as good as your word. Again, are you and I as good as our word? Or are we not? If a person is the kind that's always swearing that they're telling the truth, you, you've known this kind of person, they're generally not very believable anyway. You've known people like that. Maybe someone with whom you work or go to school or a neighbor or maybe even a family member. They're always swearing that what they're saying is true. And I don't know about you, but something in me is kind of this red flag that says, why are they being so adamant about the fact that they're telling the truth? It's like when someone gets real serious with you and says, Now, now Richard, I'm going to be real honest with you now. Well, part of me wants to say, Well, wait a minute, have you not always been honest with me about everything? Do you know someone who always seems to have a difficulty keeping their word? I've, I've got a lot of examples of this um, throughout my life in ministry and throughout my own personal life. My favorite one is this Oh, you can trust me, preacher. If I ever have a problem with you, you'll be the first one to know because I'll come to you and I'll let you know. Loving more times than not, I can be sure of one thing. 
that person will be the last person who will come to me when they have a problem with me. Jesus says we must be as good as our word. While we're there, let me just say words can do so much harm. James has got the best characterization of the tongue. It's strong, but it's accurate. You remember what he says in the third chapter? When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles, and creatures of the sea have been tamed and are being tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers, my sisters, this should not be. Baseless rumors, loose lips are responsible for starting far too many fires and far too many churches and it's so harmful. And I'll never understand, I'll never understand why people who say they love the church and they love Jesus persist in malicious spreading of gossip. Stories they can't begin to substantiate are worse than know full well that they're wrong. Proverbs 10.19 says, Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's probably pretty good advice for all of us. Beloved, are you as good as your word? Are you someone others can count on? Are you a person of integrity and honesty? Does your yes mean yes and your no, no? When you're gone, how will you be remembered along these lines? I always like the Superman movies. Anybody else like the Superman movies? I remember Superman 2. That's the one where Christopher Reeve plays Superman and Gene Hackman plays Lex Luthor, his arch enemy. You remember that one? There's a scene near the end where Luther gives Superman this kind of backhanded compliment. Luther says, promises were made, promises were broken, but I, a guy always knew where he stood with you. You always told the truth. I respect that. Beloved, we're all a work in progress. But isn't that what we want people to say about us? You know, old Scott, you always knew where you stood with him. He always spoke the truth. I respect that. Brother Dave, I always knew where you stood with Brother Dave. He always spoke the truth. Brother Richard, you always knew where you stood with that guy. He always told the truth, and I respect that. Beloved, what we're talking about here, one of the bottom lines of several that we don't have time to go into, but one of them is the credibility of our witness. Living with integrity specifically with regard to what comes out of our mouths, it says a lot to people who are watching us and listening to us, watching and listening to us as Bible-believing, church-going Christians. 
And if we wonder, if we ever wonder why we're not being more effective in reaching the Tri-Cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may need to look no further than how the lost of our community are seeing us live our lives and what they're hearing come out of our mouths. Do they see lives indwelt by the Spirit of Christ? Do they see lives in which the sinful nature has been crucified? Love, we can't expect folks to want to come to our church and more importantly want to come to Jesus Christ if we are not living lives marked by integrity. And that includes what we say and how we say it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your Holy Spirit who has filled those of us who have come to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. We're thankful for that Spirit that guides us challenges us and convicts us and changes us yes father when we speak wrongly when we are frivolous with our oaths when those times come when we are not as good as our word we're thankful for that conviction father and we're 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 also thankful for the growth that we experience. Anything good that comes out of us, it's not us, Father. It's, it's the new creation in us. It's your Holy Spirit doing His work in us to make us like your Son, Jesus Christ. So we're thankful for that. Father, help us to be men and women of integrity who do the right thing even when no one is watching who say, who say the right thing and in every instance, Lord God, that those who hear us might be appointed to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray for those who are here today and they have yet to believe in your son, Jesus, and perhaps in, in this very moment, Father, they are, they, are, they are sensing something. Your Spirit is, is speaking with them, is communicating with them, Father, of their need to yield to the Lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, if that's the case, they'd, they'd give me the privilege of talking with them as we sing this hymn in a few moments or, or, or perhaps go to another person they know to be a believer here in this church family and talk with them about what your Holy Spirit is, is doing in them, how you are calling them to yourself. Father, all of us need to get up every day and take up our cross and follow you. And, and some of us fail. And, and Father, we need to recommit. We need to rededicate. And I pray for those who have, who have fallen away, Father. Their fault, somebody else's fault, nobody's fault, Father. They're just not where they ought to be and they know it. But today they're sensing a need to come back to you and to begin to, to walk in a way that's pleasing to you and speak in a manner that's pleasing to you and hear things only that are, that are pleasing to you and that will be edifying to them. And I pray, Lord, for those that your Holy Spirit would, would bring them to the point of recommitment and rededication in their walk with your Son, Jesus Christ. And finally, Father, I want to pray for those who are searching for a church home. Uh, your New Testament knows nothing of churchless Christianity. There are... There are people here who need to be a part of of a body of faith i I pray that you've guided them to this place but if not i pray you would help them in their search for a church that that unabashedly preaches the gospel of your son jesus christ that reveres the word and teaches the word faithfully 
We want people to be where you want them to be, Father. So we pray you would guide in that process wherever that might lead them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.